On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no. She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner. Doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks. Run happy. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Shana Goldman. Shana, what's going on? Nothing's going on. Good to be here. It is good to be here. So I was out of town last week. I, uh, I did a brief little vacation, and uh, I missed draft weekend, so I didn't get a chance to do a show um, right after kind of reacting to the biggest news and notes and, and trades. And so I think people are still interested in... Uh, in breakdowns of what happened while we wait for free agency here. So I thought it'd be good for us to kind of catch up and chat about um, some of the most interesting stuff that kind of popped up around the league while, while everyone was congregated in Montreal, you were, uh, you were there yourself, right? Or were you not? Yeah. Yeah. I was there for a short trip, but it was super fun. Nice. Okay. Well, I think, I think the logical starting point for us here is the Alex to bring trade. Cause I feel like, um, that was definitely the the biggest or most consequential deal that we saw uh, over the weekend, and it was a it was a doozy. Like for I, I think no one no one was surprised that he was moved to the draft. I mean, there were certainly months of speculation and kind of a growing sentiment that he was on the way out of Chicago as they burn it all down, and it was a matter of um, of when, not if. But what I I personally was definitely surprised by was the return they actually got. I, I, I don't know, maybe uh, I bought too much into all the hype about kind of the reports we'd heard about what their asking price was or, or how many teams were significantly interested in him and kind of felt like this market was building up. So maybe I bought into that too much. But for whatever reason, I talked myself into the Blackhawks being able to recoup significantly more than, than they wound up with here. And that's kind of uh, a good entryway into this conversation for me because that was that was possibly the most surprising kind of element of this deal for me yeah like I mean the Blackhawks the way they're going about the rebuild is is kind of intriguing to me because for so many of these players you're like don't you want this young core to build around don't you want to focus on moving the veterans out and things like that and Debrinkat is the only one of the young players that I think it actually can make sense to move him out if you're worried about what his next contract might cost and like most of all does his timeline line up with Chicago? And there's a ton of reasons why you could say it doesn't. You want a player in their prime. His next contract will pay him post-prime a bit. So you don't want to like start with a contract like that. But here it is, them shipping out these, you know, young players and everybody knows they want to tank. Everybody knows they want to move out these players, but you should still be squeezing teams for more, I think. And maybe it's because we don't have a good enough basis for like what the value of a top five pick is. You know, we can measure that in game score value added. We can measure that in goals above replacement, but we don't see these spicy deals enough where the second overall pick is actually moved or the fourth overall pick is actually moved. So we could see how much it's worth, but I would think he's worth one of those picks and maybe not seventh overall. Yeah. It's weird because he's, he's still 24 years old, right? He turns 25 in December, I believe. So like we're kind of programmed to think of, of that being as like, a quote unquote young player. And it certainly is uh, as someone who turned 30 years old this year, what I would give to, to be 24 once again. Um, and, and like, he's entering the prime of his career here and he's got a lot of productive seasons left, but you know, on a personal level, if you're the brink at, and you're kind of looking at this realistically, the Blackhawks are probably going to stink here for at least three, four or five years. Um, your mileage on that vary, but considering what they've done so far this summer, I think it's going to be a long haul, certainly. And if that's the case, like, and you're looking at it pragmatically, would you want to sign up moving forward to that, knowing that you're going to basically spend the rest of your 20s being on a crappy lottery team? So, like, it, it, it makes sense. It's weird to think of, like, he is a young player, but at the same time, the shelf life is short, so short in the NHL for being a, a peak player. So, like, from his perspective, 
I imagine he personally probably did not want to stick around for this as well. Yeah. And like from the reports, I think I saw from Mark Lazarus, um, he wasn't necessarily forcing his way out of there, but I mean, we could all use our logic. Even if he said, sure, this is fine for me now in two years, it could be another conversation, especially if you don't like the way the team's going, the direction of things. And based on the start of it, I wouldn't be surprised if anyone said they didn't like the direction of things. You have to trust that your management has a plan and is going to turn this around quicker. So it makes sense in so many ways for Chicago to pick him to move versus, I don't know, Doc letting Strom walk for nothing. And you can make the argument for Hagel too, as a young player on a cheap contract that you want to be part of the solution, not part of the answer to get out of there. And you do have to take big swings to get those big returns, which is what you need to turn this team around quicker but you should be pressuring for every little bit that you can get. And if I remember correctly, like there were some links to New Jersey in the second overall pick, which Mm -hmm. New Jersey said they were going to be willing to move even after it was known that it was the second overall pick. If I'm Chicago, that's, that is like the highest, you know, amount that you can get back in terms of draft capital to settle on the seventh. You're just like, Oh, yeah. It's, well, it seems very underwhelming. They got the seventh, the 39th, and then a 2022, 2024 third. Um, and this is a draft where I think everyone seemed to agree that there's some interesting prospects, certainly, but it's relatively lackluster at the top. Like the seventh overall pick might not necessarily carry as much weight as it would in, in an ideal season. Like right. the, you know, the crown jewel they got, Kevin Korczynski, who I like, like at elite prospects in our draft guide, we had him ranked as the 19th prospect in this year's class. And I don't know. Sometimes in these situations, I think the market simply doesn't materialize the way you would have hoped. And you kind of wind up having to just take the best offer you can. But if that is the case here, I guess my question is why the Blackhawks simply didn't just wait it out then, right? Like if if no one was beating this specific offer at the time leading up to the draft, why not just hold on to them until someone inevitably gets desperate, which always happens in the NHL. Like it's not like they're working against a a ticking clock here where it's not even a Kevin Fiala situation where you're kind of viewing a a contentious RFA negotiation and you're wondering, okay, how's this going to go? Do we even want to pay him? Can we even afford to pay him for this one season? Like he's under contract at 6.4 million next season. And there's a lot of, you know, contractual uh, machinations we can get into beyond that, but it did buy them quite a bit of wiggle room here to, patiently weighed out the best offer possible. And it, and it really felt like from their perspective, they didn't have a first round pick in this year's draft because they had already moved it for Seth Jones last year, misguidedly. And so it almost felt like they were like, well, we need, we suck and we're going to be really bad this season. We need to have something to show for it immediately rather than waiting for the 2023 first. And so they basically didn't want to drag out this process any longer. And they just kind of pulled the trigger on it. And I feel like, that was a mistake because as you mentioned, the Brinkat really did feel like the one remaining young ish asset that they had that could conceivably net them a meaningful return that could help speed up this rebuilding process beyond just getting like the 27th overall pick at, at the next year's deadline or whatever that they're going to be able to get for some of these other spare parts. Like this was the one guy where they could have gotten multiple significant pieces and they didn't really come away with that in my opinion here. No, I don't think that they did at all. And there's always a risk to waiting. You know, you look at so many trades and I think some one that like sticks out in my mind, say like Alexander Guerrier, like he was someone everyone thought was going to go for more. And it seems like the Rangers thought they could have gotten more from him. So they held on to him. And obviously they got a good return relative to what he is now. But if they had traded him a season and a half ago, when he was at his height, they would have gotten a lot more back from him. They decided to wait and it dried up. Like there is a risk to that. There shouldn't be here. This is a 40 goal scorer in the league on a reasonable contract who is young. This is not a 28 year old, a 29 year old, a 30 year old. This is a young winger who shows that he can put pucks in net and, and he has great passing skills too. This is, you know, an all around great forward to have. So this should have been the piece. Obviously they can still move players like Taves and Kane, and they're going to get a lot for them because they have the championship caliber play and three cups and all of that. And that is important, but they have higher cap hits. They're older and each one has flaws. You can look at Taves season. You know, he had a very rough year and rightfully so when you understand the circumstances around it, but at the end of the day, those circumstances are consideration in the next trade. And Patrick Kane has his own can of worms right there. So this is the one to maximize. And instead you're getting a seventh overall pick back that you're hoping one day can be like Alex Debrinkat. And the chances of that are pretty slim. You have such a special player. So you want to maximize that. You could have retained salary mid-year. You could have waited. Like, you should be the ones holding the card. And I understand if they don't want 
to move him mid-year because they want to tank. And if he's on their team, he's going to make them a better team than they are. But everybody in the league knows that, that you have to try to leverage the situation better. And instead of like crunching to the pressure, be the one to control it because you have the best asset that's going to be moved in this trade. Yeah, I was going to say, I have no idea what they're doing, but that would be false because I know exactly what they're doing. Like they're they're telegraphing it pretty clearly, right? Like they're blatantly going to try to tank as aggressively as they can for this upcoming Bedard draft. I think they're trying to put the pressure on Kane and Taves to, to give in and waive their no-move clauses and, and move them as well by basically getting rid of every other NHLer around them and making the situation so bad in terms of the playing environment that they're going to have to give in. I think... Kane, uh, Taves, and Seth Jones are the only players on their current roster that had more than 22 points in the NHL last season at this point. Um, I guess the, the issue for me and, and you know, tying into Debrinkat, pretty much everything they did uh, over the weekend at the draft, uh, you know, taking Razik's deal and helping the Leafs out of a jam by doing so at a negligible cost, like basically moving up whatever 11 slots and from the second to the first round, not qualifying Stroman, Kubalik. Um, pretty much everything they've done for me is, is kind of suboptimal from the perspective of like, yes, it's small stuff for a team that's going to suck and is facing a wrong rebuild. So it's not, we don't want to suggest that it's going to be like make or break because it's ultimately not going to change the end result, but it does kind of reflect like it's a sign that they're in over their heads at the moment in terms of the way they're approaching it and shouldn't exactly inspire confidence that they're going to be able to pull this process off in a timely fashion. Like we've seen teams like, the Rangers and the Kings over the past couple of years do so in like a highly efficient, uh, tactical and aggressive manner where like it was tough for a couple of years, but they, they turned the, they turned the page over pretty quickly. Now they obviously had lottery luck in, in the process as well and had players come and sign with them, but like they, they earned that luck by, by being very deliberate in their approach. And so I guess you could say the Blackhawks are doing so here and basically just getting rid of everyone and fully embracing the tank, but it feels like they've left so much value on the board over this past week, and that's not going to do them any favors moving forward. So I, I can't help but feel disappointed by it. Yeah, I think it's so tricky because you look around the league and you can see like the cautionary tales of trying to speed it up. And I think Buffalo represents that a team that did try to tank. It didn't work out for them. They didn't get McDavid while they ended up with Jack Eichel, who is a great player too. Like, oh, sorry, here's Jack Eichel, like horrible stuff right there. But, um, you know, like the deals like Kyle Ocposo to try to speed it up and it burned them. And then you look at the Rangers and it took a lot of luck. But you can also look at the flaws in their system too. Like here it is, you're one as the playoff team and they're in a cap situation that you don't want. You're trying right. to clear that out. You don't want to accumulate that back before you're even back in the postseason. So I can see if they want to learn from that, but there's a difference between being deliberate and just being impatient. And it just feels like that's what they are. And I get it to an extent, again, they want to clear the roster for this year. Sure. But you have to squeeze the life out of every asset you have. And they're not doing that properly. You know, these are the young players. If you're deciding that they're not a part of the answer, then you still want to get something for them. And maybe they thought if Dylan Strom's on the roster next year and he only has Patrick Kane to play with and not to bring out his value won't be what it was, but trade him this summer, qualify him, figure it out. Like you can, you know, take a risk and hope that it's going to pay off. And if it doesn't, you know, you have a center on your team that isn't completely terrible. And even when you are rebuilding, not for nothing, you can't have a team of 18 year olds. You need other players. You need the 21 year old now who will be 25 or 26 when you're a better team. Like you want to have that variance right there. It doesn't work out. Otherwise you need NHL caliber players and young talent. That's the future. Like you need that variety. And it just seems like they're going about this in, in the wrong way. They're tearing it down. And I just don't see what they're projecting moving forward. It seems like they're just jumping the gun on too many things. Yeah. Well, it's also at the end of the day, it's an entertainment product, right? Like you need to yes. <laughs> have some reason to either turn on the TV and watch the team or pay whatever amount of money to get a buy a ticket and go watch the game in person. And, and you know, I'm, I'm struggling to think of reasons why you would tune in to watch this team at this point. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty bleak. Um, let's, let's talk about the brink at though, and, and kind of a, a more positive outlook from the Senator's perspective here, because, you know, maybe I'm, I'm on the higher end of my evaluation, on him as a player. Um, and I'm fine with that because I believe he's absolutely dynamite and he's shown us no reason to believe otherwise throughout his short NHL career. He's, he's scored at 
a 36 goal pace over his five NHL seasons. And honestly, as impressive as that is, it's, it's kind of dragged down by an outlier 2019, 20 season where his, uh, his shooting percentage had dipped a little bit. The only players that scored more than his 73 combined goals the past two years are Matthews, Dreisaitl, McDavid, Kaprizov, and Ovechkin. And now I, I think, you know, some of the common pushback that I've seen about that production is like I'm, some of his shooting efficiency has been boosted by playing next to Patrick Kane, who despite all of his other flaws still is one of the best passers in the league. And we've seen the the chemistry between those two in terms of, you know, the brain cat has become so good at kind of getting lost in defensive zone coverage. And then all of a sudden popping up for a one-timer and, and basically beating the opposing defense and goalie before they could react in time. And I certainly think there is credence to that. Like it was a great situation for him to score a lot of goals. Um, at the same time though, I think we've seen enough from him as a player in terms of the, the nuances and the layers that he's added to his game over the past couple of years to make me feel like even if his goals come down a little bit in Ottawa, like let's say he stops being a 40 plus goal scorer and it's like 32 to 35 or whatever, he's got enough to offer in other areas that we're not necessarily talking like about a one dimensional prime Mike Hoffman here, where basically if he's not shooting and scoring, he's not giving you much. Like I, I I'm confident in him as a player where he's going to be able to be a contributor regardless of, a, of how many goals he scores, acknowledging that that is kind of his main calling card at this point. Yeah, obviously he's a goal scorer and that's great to have in this league because at the end of the day, he needs goals to win games. So, you know, even if he doesn't hit 40 every single year, like it's not like he's suddenly a bust. And, you know, you can you can keep that in mind that he plays well with a great playmaker. Make sure he has a good playmaker. You don't need Patrick Kane at the heights of his careers to have Alex Brinkett be successful. And, you know, if you can find a dual threat that goes alongside him, even better, because here's someone that has these crafty passing skills and can generate offense in transition. He can generate offense off the cycle because, like you said, he can get lost in defensive coverage and just pop up and be ready to shoot. You know, this is a really talented player. As much as his scoring has slanted towards goals, it's not like it was the only thing he brings to the table. And that's the most important thing. So if you're a team like Ottawa and you go, well, we have Tim Sutzla, we're going to put him alongside Alex Brinkett, that's a combination that could be absolute dynamite for years to come like who wouldn't want that on their team and obviously Ottawa needs that that difference maker they've needed that like big move and they made it and it seems like it's the perfect situation and maybe you know the risk is if DeBrincat doesn't want to stay in Ottawa obviously but if he's in a good situation to succeed and it seems like he might be if all of a sudden Ottawa has you know a much better offense than they did this past season and they can just focus on you know cleaning it up defensively a bit like there's a lot of potential there and that's a team that's now taking the steps to turn it around. And who knew we'd be talking about Ottawa managing the situation better than Chicago. That right there for me is so ironic, but you know, DeBrincat's a super skilled player. And if you're trading the best player in a deal, like it's very hard to win the trade when you're the one losing that player. And Ottawa, I think it's like a slam dunk for them. It's just such a natural fit. It feels like to get them that impact winger, if you have Brady Kachuk and Alex Brinkhead as, you, you know, your top two winger depth, you're not doing something wrong. Yeah, that combination of potentially in the top six with with Norris and Kachuk on one line and then Stutzla and, and Brinkhead is highly appealing, right? Like what we saw from, from Tim Stutzla in year two, where I believe like on Corey's tracking, he graded out really well at creating zone entries and then turning those zone entries into scoring chances for either himself or a teammate. And so the idea of Alex the Brinkhead being his running mate, being the other the guy on the other end of those rush opportunities is obviously very appealing. Uh, also, I, I, the two of them, I believe, were second and 11th in penalty differential last year and drew 67 combined calls between the two of them. And so you can kind of see the type of problems that their speed and their play on the puck is going to provide uh, opposing defenders with as they kind of try to chase them around on the ice. So I completely agree. I think it's a, it's a slam dunk fit for him here. And, and he's going to look great in that situation. Now, as much as I love the brink at and as excited as senators fans should be about adding him to the team, you know, you, you hit on something there where there are a couple concerns that, that, that exist for me in this trade. The first is, I think it's a valid question to wonder how much this really moves the needle for them in isolation next season. Like it, we're not necessarily talking here about a team that, was a contender and now they infused the, an elite player to help and try to push them over the top. They finished with 73 points last season and a minus 40 goal differential. And they're still playing in a brutal Atlantic division where even if you project the Bruins to take a step back, you've got the lightning, the Panthers, the Leafs, 
And then even organizations like the Sabres and the Red Wings are taking steps forward and should conceivably be better. And so even adding the Brinkat without subtracting anything from their roster, they're going to be better, but they still, in my opinion, have a massive gap to bridge, uh, particularly with moves in the blue line, because it's not good enough, even if they bring in Jake Sanderson, like they still need to do more there. So I know there's like, you know, it's a, it's an annual tradition where there's this kind of usual offseason optimism that springs eternal for rebuilding teams. And then each summer it happens and the games actually start. I think there's justifiable reasons to be excited about this Senators team, especially offensively up front, but they still need to do more uh, this summer before I fully just go completely go off and, 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 and pretend like they're all of a sudden this amazing playoff contender. Like there, there are legitimate things to address here. Yeah, they were one of the worst defensive teams. And I think Anton Forsberg did a pretty good job managing the chaos. And I think that he can be fine in net if they can get him just an ounce of support. And I'm not asking for them to become some defensive stalwarts. We know it's not going to happen, but just like one little ounce. And it can be tweaks to their defensive system, I think, are necessary. I think it's personnel that's, you know, necessarily that has to change. Like there, there's a lot for them to do, but if they can create some chaos and be some disruptors in the Atlantic division, I think that could be fun for them. Like, you know, if they can be spoilers for like another minute and then start trending back up, even that would be helpful. And I think at the end of the last season, we saw them kind of create a little bit of chaos for teams that actually needed points. And here Ottawa's actually scoring goals. So if they can outscore their problems, that's nice for them, but they're going to need a little bit more than that to actually be good, especially said in such a competitive division, but it's, it's nice to see too, like, we see the contenders that tier of contenders in the Atlantic. And now there's the up and coming team. So it'll be interesting to see who gets there first. Is it going to be Detroit? Is it going to be Buffalo? Is it going to be Ottawa? And I don't think, and then Montreal's just at the bottom, which is fine. That's where they want to be right now. And it's totally cool and understandable. Um, but I want to see like the rise from those three teams to see who handles it best. And I don't think, I don't think most of us would look at it and go, Ottawa is going to be, and I still don't think they're going to be. I think that Detroit, has some really smart decision makers. I think that the Sabres have done a good job to bolster their front office with really smart minds like Sam Ventura, like that, that right there, you look at it and you go, well, he certainly knows what it takes to win and how to tweak a team to get them over the, you know, that last hill to win, I don't know, back-to-back cups. Um, Ottawa, I have quite a few questions with, you know, the front office, the decision-making over the years and things like that, but it's a good start. You know, it's a good start to the offseason. If you're starting the offseason after being a very bad team by bringing Alex to bring in, in a trade that most people are looking at going, you're the clear winner and you didn't give up much, you know, okay. Like I'm interested. I'll see what you do from here. Yeah. I, I I've seen the, you know, uh, the worst case scenario brought up of he plays in Ottawa next season. Like they're more fun to watch obviously, but the end result is more of the same. They're like an 80, let's say an 80 point team instead of 73. They were last year, they missed the playoffs. And then at that point, the Brinkat has, about as much as contractual leverage as you can have in this current system. Like if he doesn't want to sign long-term in Ottawa, you can basically take that $9 million qualifying offer for 2023, 2024 and head into that following summer as a 26 year old unrestricted free agent. And that would obviously be a, a tough result for the senators. But that brings us back to that initial price that we talked about at the top that to acquire him, because if things don't go well next year in Ottawa and they kind of sniff out that there could be trouble looming, I have no doubt in my mind that they'll be able to pretty easily pivot and recoup a similar amount, if not even more for the Brinkett. Like imagine what's a worst case scenario. They're not better next season and they're approaching the trade deadline and you can retain the Brinkett at 50% and he comes at 3.2 million for a contender. I feel pretty good about their chances of getting a first and yeah. a quality prospect and maybe even more in return. Now it won't be the seventh overall pick or whatever, but in a better draft, I, I, you know, you took a chance, you took a swing, it doesn't work out. It's not like they're all of a sudden going to lose him for nothing. Like there's plenty of opportunity here for them to adjust on the fly accordingly and still make something of this beyond just, you know, the best case scenario. Like they, I think they've left a lot of room here for themselves to navigate. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's a smart move for that. And they'd be the ones directing the market because who on the market is going to be better than Alex DeBrink at a 50%? salary. Absolutely. No one would have an asset like that. If you're a contender and you're afraid your opponent is going to go for a player like that, and you might have to face off against them and you go, great, they're adding a 40 goal score. We don't see moves like that at the deadline that often, you know, Mark Stone was like a big player to actually move at the deadline to Vegas and get that huge contract. But 
that's pretty rare. We see first round picks go for a lot less. We see second round picks go for a ton less. Look, look at like Jeremy Lazan was worth mm-hmm. the second round pick and Ben Sherratt was worth the first round pick. But if that's the case, Alex Dabrink at a 50% should bring back a haul for them. And they're going to be the ones that decide that they're going to lead the market and everyone else can follow around them. Uh, I don't I wouldn't say Jeremy Lozon was worth a second round pick. I'd say he got traded for a second round pick. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Although they did, yeah, they were pretty quick to pretty quick to extend him long-term. So they uh, clearly like him. Um, choice. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, to, to kind of put a bow on this, like I ultimately think the risk for the centers here, we both agree was more than worthwhile to take. Like at some point you have to actually try and win and like, yes. you need to get good players to do so. I, we all have this kind of like idealistic view of what like a rebuild looks like. You basically just draft a bunch of guys at the top of the draft. They all hit their hundred percent dot projection throughout their development. They become great. And all of a sudden you're a contender, but realistically, like that's not how it works. Like you need to, you need to take some, some risks. You need to take some calculated swings. You need to sometimes consolidate some of those futures in a tactical way to try and bring in a player. And this is the exact type of player you do it for. He's a 24 year old. That's already been productive. So it's not necessarily a pipe dream where you're just betting on tools or skill set. We've seen him score a lot of goals at the NHL. He's in his prime. He should at the very least beyond the entertainment level, help some of these other young players like Stutzla and Norris and everyone on the roster be in a better position to succeed. And so they're not in this just soul crushing environment where they're just losing throughout the start of their entire career. And it sucks to be there. And then by the time they come to their next contract, they just want to leave because it sucks being there. And the past five years have been pretty miserable in Ottawa. They've been really bad for a while. Their image around the league has taken a massive beating along the way. Like not a lot of players that are hitting free agency this, this off season have Ottawa very higher than their wish list. And so a way to change that is moves like this, where, you're bringing in good players, you're trying to win. And so I think it represents a nice change for them and it should really kickstart that process as you were talking about. So I, there are, there are risks attached as we've outlined, but I think ultimately it was, it was just such a no brainer for them to go this route. Yeah, no, it's the risk to take. Like everything has to be a calculated risk. And, you know, we, if we look at this and we're going, what a spicy deal. And every other week it's like, this is nothing. This is what we need to see more of. We need to see teams be bold and and go for it. And it would have been interesting to see who else, if they had that same strategy, would have gone for it. Would the devils have gone for it? Would another bottom feeding team and like, you know what, this is the player that we need to turn things around. It would have been so interesting to see a team that we could look at that maybe could be in that contender status figured out like Dallas go, we need an impact winger and have more teams around the league kind of jumping at it. And, you know, the Kings got Biala. That took a team right out of the mix for a different cat that I think should have been in there because the Kings need anything. They need someone who can finish. And, you know, we know different cat can. But at the end of the day, there finally was a bold move. And if it pays off, hopefully other teams take no and go, okay, maybe we need to know when to start taking the swings and who to take the swings on. If you're taking the swing on anyone, it should be a young, talented winger versus it, giving someone a seven-year contract in free agency that you have to overpay to bring them into your crappy team. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, okay, I've got two other topics I want to hear. I'll, I'll let you pick the order. Do you want to talk about the Oilers? Because I thought they had a very interesting draft weekend. Or do you want to talk about um, the Philip Forsberg contract extension and kind of the rest of the market and maybe Johnny Gaudreau and kind of that element of things? Let's go with that. That's exciting. All right. So Forsberg signed uh, eight years, 8.5 million. He turns 28 this summer. He's coming off a career season in which he just went off completely offensively. He scored 42 goals despite missing 13 games. Uh, Only Matthews and Kreider scored goals more frequently on a permanent basis than him. I believe he was tied for fourth and five on five goals total. Now it was inflated like pretty much every uh, efficiency perspective, right? Like he shot 19%. Uh, I believe the Predators shot 12% at five on five with him on the ice. So it was certainly a, an opportune time for it to all kind of come together and coalesce in that manner for him offensively. Um, but, you know, I can't be, I can't be rational. I love Philip Forsberg so much, everything about him, uh, the game, the mustache, I was, it's, you it's, have it's, to mention the mustache. I'm glad you went there early because it was at the top of my mind. The mustache is, is fantastic. <laughs> Honestly, one of the most satisfying players to watch, in my opinion, in the entire league. Like we don't, for whatever reason, don't think of him in his capacity, but like he, for my money, is one of the best power forwards in today's game. Like the combination of skill, but also just being able to 
basically put his shoulder down and just take the puck to the net and keep defenders on his back. Uh, and the puck protection he displays while doing so is just completely immaculate. It's just beautiful to watch. And so he's obviously the question with him has been health and the ability to actually realize all of that skill into fundamental results where he hasn't scored nearly as many goals as you'd expect a player with his skill set to score throughout his career, partly because he's missed so many games, but I don't know, like I don't have anything too insightful to say about this deal because it's like a lot of money for a player who's going to be 30 soon, but at the same time, the predators are kind of boxed in and he's such a great player that I can't fault them for wanting to retain him. Like he's the most exciting player they've ever had. Yeah. If they didn't sign him, it, it, you really would have to take a long, hard look at this roster and be like, what do we do? Because that was the impact forward. You have an impact player at each position. You have UC Saros, you have Romagnosi, and then you have Forsberg. Do you have to bank on the fact that Matt Duchesne going to have another good year? Like you really can't. And I think he was a big part of Forsberg's success, but like you look at Nashville's offense and that top line can bring the puck in with possession and actually carry it and generate offense and create chances off of those entries. Otherwise, it's Romagnosi carrying the load in the second, third, and fourth lines. It's chip and chase, and not much happens. There's a big reason why that top line is as, like, you know, highly touted as they are. They have the results. They have the underlying numbers to back it up. Um, will the contract age well? That's the biggest question. Like, some of his comparable players, it doesn't. And, you know, the, the thing that works in his favor is he's not as physical as some of those players. So when you see those, like, downswings, you're like, well, I don't expect him to play the same style, and we know how physical style can, like, lead to aging more rapidly. So if he can, you know, end up like say Steven Samkos in his aging curve, who is a top six comp by Dom Lushishin's model, then, you know, that's a pretty good deal to have. But even if not, like realistically, we know how long a team's lifespan is as a contender. And I don't think any of us look at Nashville and go, it's definitely going to be them in eight years. They can maintain it. They don't have the young talent because they've been so focused on contending. But if they're going to with Saros and Yossi, then you need Forsberg. And now you have to make the right moves around it. Ryan McDonough brings in defensive depth. Maybe they could address that a little bit more. They need some more impact forwards to go in their middle six. And I don't know, maybe like it would help to have a backup goal you can count on so you don't need UC Saros to play 80% of your games. Get hurt at the end of the regular season because you ran him into the ground in this first year as a truly bonafide starter. And then going to the postseason with no goaltender and go, well, here's the Colorado Avalanche. And now we have zero shot of being spoiler. So more work to be done, yes. But this was a fundamental start to their offseason because if not, I think the entire direction of the franchise would have to change. Yeah, no, certainly. And yeah, I it was a, it was a steep price to pay, but I, I think the world of him as a player. So I, I think it was it was reasonable. I, I you know, the reason why I wanted to kind of talk about this angle is obviously I think now everyone's attention shift. Like we've seen to bring at go off the board. He got traded Fiala. We saw Forsberg get extended and stay in Nashville. Uh, now, understandably, everyone's going to kind of shift their sights here over the next couple of days to Johnny Gaudreau and what's going to happen next with him. And so I'm, I'm really interested to see kind of how that's going to play out and whether he is actually going to leave Calgary for potentially more money or if he's going to stay there and what Calgary is going to do as a result of that decision, right? Like I, I think ultimately for them, like they were, they were so good last regular season and have so much to build off of if they could bring that team together. But if Gaudreau leaves, I'd almost, I don't think they would do this, uh, especially with, with Daryl Sutter still there, but like I'd be tempted to not try to replace him because what he brings to the table and what he meant to that team was so, um, instrumental with everything revolving around him offensively that I don't think you could just kind of go plug and play any other UFA and overpay them to try to kind of replicate that. Like you'd almost, I'd almost be tempted to just go to the opposite direction and completely tear it down. But that would obviously be a very tough sell considering the success they had last season, but that's something I'm going to be certainly be watching over this uh, next couple of days. Yeah. I think the smartest thing a team can do is know when to step back. And even if you're not going to fully tear it down, it's just stepping back and going, let's retool quickly. Let's move a couple assets, bring something back in and just tweak the roster. I think I, I always think of the blues the year that uh, the year before they won at the deadline, who like, we're going to get out in the first round. And they stepped back. They traded Paul Stasny, if I remember right, got a couple of picks and they were able to make, you know, impactful moves that off season because they just recouped some assets. So that would be the smart way to handle it. And that might be like the easier sell than tearing it down because everyone obviously wants to recoup money from, you know, the last couple of years and not having fans. And if you can sell playoffs, you can, you know, make money off of that. I mean, if you're the flames, you open up your wallet to Matthew Kachuk. But the big thing is as, as amazing as that top line was, and each of them was so valuable to their success, Johnny Gaudreau was the most valuable player there. He was the, he was, you know, the, 
what is it the straw that stirs the drink is that the same that's right yeah there that's what he was small johnny gaudreau who was the most impactful player you know he was incredible in transition one of the best wingers at creating offense off the rush and his passing was so superb too i don't think it gets talked talked about enough he could create offense from behind the net so easily too to set up you know elias lindholm who had a career in goal scoring it's no surprise it's playing alongside johnny gaudreau so It'll be really interesting to see what happens. We don't see these elite players move often enough. We have John Tavares. We have Artemi Panarin. So it would be really interesting to see if Johnny Gaudreau actually does because it it sets more of a precedent, I think, for other players around the league too. Like if more players start doing it, trends develop, and you know everyone could be a little more gutsy, and maybe we see more player movement in the NHL because, I mean, we're just looking for a little bit of chaos, just a bit in the most boring league ever. But it really would be interesting to see like what his value is in Calgary versus what it is somewhere else, you know, another team obviously is going to overpay to keep them. And then when we have actual elite players moving in free agency, we can see what happens with those contracts versus the second or third line caliber player that gets paid like a first liner to join a new team because they need somebody, anybody to help them out. If we start seeing these impactful contracts from elite players, I wonder if that starts shifting how free agents get paid as well. But since we never have those elite players moving around, we don't get to see it enough. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's take a quick break here. I've got a, uh, like, we'll do like 10 or 15 more minutes on, uh, on the Oilers and a few more things um, before we get out. But yeah, we'll take a quick break here. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Recognize employees with Custom Ink. Show customer appreciation with Custom Ink. Outfit your teams with Custom Ink. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custominc.com. Make Custom Ink your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at custominc.com. All right. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the sort of the, the, the spiciness and the chaos and seeing teams uh, try to make stuff happen because, you know, kind of, kind of tie this all together. I, I talked about this a little bit on a, a solo podcast that I did recently breaking down the Fiala trade, but um, two, from what I heard, two teams that really caught my interest um, as the finalists in those trade discussions that were genuinely exploring a deal um, weren't the ones that were being reported, right? We heard a lot about the devils and how they were kind of floating around the second overall pick, trying to make a move happen. We heard the senators and obviously they wound up getting to brink at but the two teams that I heard that were most directly linked other than the Kings, of course, were the Seattle Kraken, which I found very interesting. And I know that they're going to be a bit of a chaos agent this off season because they've got a lot of money to spend. They've got a lot of cap flexibility. And I think last season left a pretty sour taste in everyone's mouth and they don't necessarily want to allow that to be, kind of become the trend in the norm in Seattle. And so I think they're going to be up to stuff. Now, obviously, um, you know, from what I heard, like the Kings were pretty much the only team that wanted to spend over 7 million annually on Fiala to make that deal happen. I think the Kraken would have been interested. It didn't make sense for them to give up the equivalent of a first and a top defensive prospect to, as the acquisition cost to facilitate it. And so I think that took them out of the race. But then the other team was the Calgary Flames. And that kind of had my eyebrows raised a little bit because obviously if they're bringing back all their players, they would not have the financial resources to make that happen. Now, I don't think it's a big deal because I'm sure this happens all the time where GMs are just literally doing their job by 
kind of mapping out backup plans and exploring potential ways to improve their team and kind of just seeing what it's going to take to make a deal happen. So I don't want to put too much stock into that, but just, I thought it was interesting to think about because it it did seem like they were very involved in, in that conversation. And that wasn't something that we necessarily kind of thought about as a logical fit. So I kind of wanted to just float that out here. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. Um, the Kraken you'd definitely be the agent of chaos. I mean, you look at everything they've done over the last year and the assets that they've put together so they can make these impact moves and not feel it at all. Like if anyone's going to spice it up, I feel like it's them. They have so many smart minds in their front office that it doesn't make a ton of sense for them unless they plan. They had other you know plans in the works that they're like, well, we can move these assets and not feel it. And now we can do X, Y, Z and have, you know, a team that can actually generate offense next year because they had good defense if they could get, uh, you know, average, at least goaltending, um, you know, just spice it up with some forwards. But Calgary is really, really interesting to me because it's if you're not if you're not exploring this, even if you know what's on your checklist, and for them it's Johnny Goodrow and Matthew Kachuk, and rightfully so. And Andrew Manjapani. Um, right, and Andrew Manjapani too. Like if you're you're one of you want to avoid offer sheets and you have to manage your cap space. But you're not doing your job if you don't explore these deals. You don't do your job if you don't kick the tires on everything. We hear that constantly. And so many people take kicking the tires as something I think a little bit more literal, like, oh my God, they're into this deal. But they, that's exactly what they should be doing. You should be exploring the cost of acquisition for a player like that. You should be trying to make your team better. And if you can put together a bunch of good players, you can deal with the cap later, just hopefully not to the extent of, say, I don't know, a team like Vegas, how they've handled the cap. You can go a couple steps back and handle it a little bit more personally. But yeah, that's, that's your job. Put together the best assets you can and then figure it out from there. And they obviously have the assets to make a difference if they had to move cap space out. But I, I find that super interesting. And there's other teams around the league we could look at, like say, I don't know, Edmonton as a team that should have been right there, but they don't have the same future assets either because they've mismanaged everything that you could possibly mismanage over the last few years. Well, that's a great segue because <laughs> I thought their week was, was very interesting because I, you know, they obviously paid quite a, a relatively hefty price to get off of Zach Cassian's contract. And certainly like, I'm not going to give them a ton of credit for doing so because uh, well, one, everyone just launders bad contracts to the coyotes, but two, it was, it was a very self-inflicted wound that they never should have signed to begin with. But, you know, with the combination of dumping Cassian's contract and Keith choosing to retire, if Mike Smith retires as well, they basically have, I think, 20.6 million in functional cap space to work with heading into agency. Now they have to take care of a couple of their own RFAs. But um, I think it's 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 very interesting because they've got a unique opportunity here this offseason uh, to meaningfully consolidate that spirited run they had to the conference final and even potentially build on it and improve their team like assuming they were paying attention to that series against the avalanche and took the right lessons from the defeat beyond thinking, Oh, we need to get more difficult to play against, or we need to get tougher (laughs) or whatever. Like they've got a chance here to legitimately improve their team. And considering the level we saw Connor McDavid and Leandre Seidel on one leg, basically play at like that should inspire a lot of confidence that if they can nail this off season, they would be a very, very interesting team moving forward. Now your mileage on how confident we should be in Kenny Holland nailing that is is, is fair to wonder about. Um, but at least they, they, they do have the, they have the resources right now to conceivably really improve their team. And so that's why I'm interested in them. Yeah. I think the bars on the floor with what I expect the Oilers to do and Ken Holland specifically between his time in Edmonton and in Detroit. Um, but if you, you always can have a chance if you have Conor McDavid and Leandre Seidel, you should always, always, always have a chance to compete, to be successful. You just have to find the right pieces around them. And I know it's easier said than done, but you know, we could look at the Zach Hyman contract and go, well, it was a little bit overpriced. And at the end of it, it might hurt them. Sure. But you know, he was very good for them this past year and in the postseason too. And players like Brian Eugene Hopkins, that if you have, you know, a good supporting cast as a jumping off point, you're doing something right. Um, the Zach Cassian contract, like you said, self-inflicted wound right there. Now that they, they had to buy their way out of it. And hopefully that's the lesson some teams are going to take from this. Not that you can just ship off your bad contracts to Arizona, which everybody knows you can, because who among us wants to sign in Arizona? That's how they're going to have to get players. Um, but, you know, 
you you should learn that you shouldn't be signing those contracts in the first place. You need to be a little bit more shrewd with your cap space. Otherwise, you're going to pay for it in the long run. And those are assets they probably could have used to have, you know, to either replenish your prospect pool or draft players and then move them at a later date to keep contending. So the fact that they had to hurt themselves now, obviously it sucks, but they got very lucky that Duncan Keith was retiring after they oddly had to pay to get him instead of having the Blackhawks pay them to take him. Yeah. Um, it helps. It's addition by subtraction because his game has already declined a lot and I expect it to only get worse from here. Sure. He has the leadership and all of that. And I think that that could pull a million holes in that argument right there, but strictly on the ice, it does help them. And Koskinen obviously wants out. That's a contract that expired. That was a tough look too at the time of the signing. So they, they're going to have some cap space to make some moves. And I, I think free agency is a best opportunity because they don't have a million, you know, future assets to, to use right now. I'd want to keep them for the deadline to address the team properly, to ensure that they can be at their best for a playoff run because you have Connor McDavid and Leon Seidel, and you should be going for it every single year if you can. Um, but I, I'm really curious how they handle it. If they take the right lessons from it. And if it's, you know, I, I know they have the negotiations ongoing with Evander Kane and that's a player that, as good as he might've been in their run, strictly speaking on the ice, I would not be investing that much in it. I would be looking elsewhere. Here's the thing. I, I think Elliot Freeman recently wrote in a piece of his where he noted how players he had spoken to around the league were taking notice of what McDavid and Dre Saddle did in the office in the postseason, And they were legitimately impressed by it to the point where he felt that the team would be able to leverage it to get guys to come play with them. We hear that all the time, right? Like you, you want a chance to win. You want to be in a position where you can put up goals and points. That's a pretty good spot to land in playing next to either Connor McDavid or Leandre Settle, especially if you're on the power play with them. If that's the case, then paying a premium to retain guys who have been productive alongside them offensively kind of defeats the purpose of that. Like yeah. just strictly from a value perspective, you should be identifying the next players that you can get to come in and benefit from that position of strength and kind of use that wiggle room you've afforded yourself improve elsewhere. Right. And I, I just, I'm so tantalized by them right now because I've spent so much time thinking about what I would do to improve them. And there's so many courses they can take, like retain Brett Kulak, do not trade Jesse Pugliarvi, try to trade Tyson Berry because he's kind of redundant. If you're just going to use Evan Bouchard, who's better yeah. than him in that offensive role, try to steal Travis Sanheim from, from Philadelphia after they just spent all these resources to get Tony D'Angelo, like, don't potentially don't overpay for Jack Campbell. Maybe just get James Reimer for nothing and pair him with Stuart Skinner as an interesting cheap tandem. Like there's so many like little crafty moves that they could make this off season to maximize value and come back with an absolutely loaded roster. And I'm worried that they're going to instead do a bunch of other stupid stuff where they spend money where they don't need to. Um, but we'll see, we'll see what happens and it'll, it'll, it'll certainly be fun. Like they're certainly going to do stuff. So at least from a entertainment perspective, there will be stuff for us to analyze and talk about, but I did just want to highlight them here because as they were freeing up all this money over the draft weekend, I just like spent, I just went down like this bit, the biggest wormhole of kind of <laughs> fantasy, fantasy booking what I'd want them to do. And I was like, Oh man, it would be so fun to manage this team over the next couple of weeks. But uh, alas, it's going to be Ken Holland instead. Yeah. And he probably won't be nearly as fun or creative, but no, like, I like, I like the argument they made too about if you're playing alongside Connor McDavid and, and Leandre said, you shouldn't be paying a premium for that player should want to do that. And if I'm a free agent, even if I'm a restricted free agent and you're contemplating signing an offer sheet, or if you're an unrestricted free agent thinking of going there, I don't even know if I'd want to sign a long-term contract there. I would be like, give me a year next to Connor McDavid. I want to boost my own value. Even if you only end up spending one year alongside Connor McDavid and here you have to decide would you rather have a ton of fun playing with McDavid long-term or make a ton of money? You know, and there's an argument to be made Why not perspective either way. Yeah, exactly. I would be like, I want to sign for a year there, boost my value going, look, I can keep up and compliment top players. You should want me on your team. Then other teams are going to want to pay you. I would, I would be like, I would want Connor McDavid's, you know, one of his wingers, maybe you want to have as like a, a, a staple player. Sure. And on the other side, I have it just a revolving door of players who want to come in, boost their value, go elsewhere and keep that cheap, keep your books a little bit open in the long term because we know they have long-term contracts like Darnell Nurse and Hyman and McDavid and Joyce Seidel that are going to be like clogging it up long-term, which they absolutely should be. You have to build the core out, but it would be so interesting if that's just the hotspot for a year or two. It's like, all right, play here, make some money and now go make even more money because everyone's so impressed at what you can do. 
Yeah. Well, especially now that they have the postseason success this year as well. Right. So it's not necessarily just like a regular season thing. Like if you can, you, you, we've already seen what that looks like for them heading into the postseason as well. And so all of a sudden it becomes a much more appealing spot theoretically for, uh, for players to come play. So yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to, to watch. I'm, I'm excited for free agency to start on Wednesday. Uh, I think there's gonna be a lot for us to, to follow and discuss and Shana, we're going to certainly have you back on the PDO cast, uh, sometime down the road to, to discuss all that. So, uh, I'll let you plug some stuff. What, uh, what have you been working on lately? Cause I know you've been busy as always. Uh, so let people know where they can check you out and, uh, and kind of some of the recent stuff you've, uh, you've put out there. Um, so you can find my work at Sportsnet and at the athletic, I'm going to have, I think like some sort of winners and losers, maybe at the athletic after free agency, but, um, coming out next, uh, later today actually is something on like the salary cap and, it, it tries to assign values for each uh, core. I use the cup checklist. So it's the 12, you know, elite winger, top line winger, top six forward, things like that, elite defenseman, how much cap space should be allocated to those positions, how much they're generally underpaid by. So we kind of can see that cap structure and then apply it to future seasons. And, you know, there's something I'll definitely revisit when the cap goes up, when we see costs increase to see what the difference is, because the last couple of years have been so funky. But I just wanted to know how much is, you know, an, an elite center actually worth. So when we see, payers get played on free uh, paid on free agency day, you know, we could look at it and go, well, they're going to be a second line, uh, second line center for them. What should they be worth versus what they actually just got paid? Love it. Well, uh, certainly recommend as always checking out all your work and that's going to be really fun to, uh, to read. So Shana, this was a blast. Enjoy free agency and, uh, and we'll chat soon. Thanks for having me. All right, that is going to be it for today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast. As always, it was a blast to have Shane on the show. Hopefully, you enjoyed our roundup of uh, our belated roundup of the 2022 NHL draft weekend and all the stuff that happened uh, during that time in Montreal. So, uh, we're going to be back here soon with more content on this feed. Um, I believe the plan is either late Wednesday night or early uh, Thursday morning, we are going to do. Uh, kind of like a quick look at what happened uh, at the start during the first wave of free agency. Usually we see right out of the gate, uh, most of the big names sign on day one and, and most of the money is spent and allocated accordingly. So uh, we're going to have a lot to discuss there. And then if there's other moves uh, that follow after that in the coming days, we're going to get to that as well. We're going to do uh, a few more shows here before we kind of wind down and take a bit of a break heading into August and, uh, and and getting a refresher before uh, the start of the following season. So uh, thank you as always for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. Um, if you did enjoy our chat, uh, please consider helping us out as always by leaving a rating and review. Uh, a lot of you have done so already. They're awesome. I love to see it. Uh, hopefully if you've been holding out and you haven't done so yet for whatever reason, you can do so now. And this is a, your motivation that you need to, to get it done. So uh, thanks for doing that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. And we'll be back soon with more. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.